Did you catch your Live on fire? Live from J.C. Newman Cigar Studios in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Smoking Tobacco Show with your hosts, Matt Tobacco and Smoking Nicole. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Smoking Tobacco Show. My name is Matt Tobacco from SmokingTobacco.com, and I am joined uh, by none of the Smoking Tobacco staff tonight. This is weird. They're all out working in other places. Uh, so I'm flying this one solo. Uh, but with me tonight, I have some of our friends from the Premium Cigar Association. Uh, that lovely thing that we talk about all the time that everyone likes to ignore. Um, but tonight, you should really pay attention. Uh, with us tonight are the legendary Mr. Glenn Loop and Mr. Josh Haberski from the PCA. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Or me, by myself. Good to be back with you, Matthew. Yeah, Glenn, you were on the show before with me and John Carney, um, and it's funny because right before we, we started, you said, at what point does John Carney show up and mess everything <laughs> up? And I was like, ah, Carney's off tonight. And then right as we went live, the broadcast went all messed up, so I blame you for bringing that bad juju jinx to the show <laughs> we tonight. Beetlejuice, <laughs> Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. <laughs> now john carney is in nebraska tonight uh, at an event at a cigar shop so he will be very tied up tonight uh the only thing i notice is uh you guys both look like you're frozen i can still hear you and everything but your videos seem to be frozen i'm not sure what's going on there um so bear with me while i try to do this in the background um do 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 let me just x that out and let me x that out and make sure that's not slowing anything down see this is the thing that happens right every time i end up doing the show without nicole who's my primary tech person there's always some sort of issue and i don't know how to fix it um we could do thousands of shows side by side and they could all be great and you would think like ah oh, just another one every single time something happens um and now you guys are both frozen and i'm not sure why that is um let me try something here. The photo looks good, though. I, we looked like we were striking a pose in both. Yeah, I think we look kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do. Um, but. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know. From the J.C. Newman cigar. This is, see, this is what happens. I start clicking shit, and I don't know what's going on. Uh, All right, let the record show. You brought up, you brought up Carney's name the second time. Uh, I know, I know. I, I did it to myself that time. All right, so now I see Josh moving around again. Uh, Glenn, I'm not sure what's going on with you, but maybe there's just some kind of delay. So I'm going to try to just run with it for now and maybe see if it'll fix itself. Um, but anyway, so you guys are both here tonight. There's a lot of things that we can talk about. I'm going to start off the conversation with uh, the trade show. Now, the trade show is something that, as you guys know, and everyone watching and listening at home knows, it's something that people talk about all the time. Um, and I'm sure you guys are sick of hearing about it. But we got to do a quick recap. So there was a lot of buzz around um, the trade show that followed the 2019 IPCPR trade show. Uh, the pandemic happened, and so 2020 never happened. So that's that. But when we finally resumed in 2021, um, a lot had changed in the world as well as within the cigar world. Um, there was a lot of people missing from the trade show a lot of for various reasons. And there's a lot of people who commented on what they think that would mean for the trade show or how the trade show would go. But I was there. You were there. The trade show seemed to go pretty well. Um, small comments and concerns that, you know, myself and my fellow media people have, have, have voiced, I think, publicly. I know I, I have and Coop have, but nothing major. Uh, I would say all in all is a, a success, but um, 
Glenn, Glenn, I'll let you go first. But what was your opinion of this year's trade show? Was it everything that you guys hoped that it would be with the short amount of time that was available to put it together and uh, addition to all of the other factors externally and internally that went on to affect it? Well, this was my 15th trade show because uh, I was attending uh, back when I was just Joe consumer uh, lobbying for the Cigar Association of Virginia. And I, I guess, you know, back when they, they really didn't mind consumer guests, but I was there in a political capacity helping the Cigar Association of Virginia. So I've seen it over, evolve over the course of, you know, literally 15 years, which is, when I think about it, it sounds like a long time, but in the scope of, you know, some of the folks that were there at the dawn of, you know, I, I, let me put, let me back up and tell you a piece of trivia. Uh, yesterday I was on the phone with David Berkabal, Georgetown Tobacco. He go back, he goes back so far. He was literally Ashton's first at Ashton's first RTDA trade show. Um, so these things evolved, and I, I've never ever heard everybody anybody totally happy, which means it's impossible to make everybody simultaneously happy. Uh, but I'll tell you what I did here. People were making money. Cigar companies what they make. The retail community was quite content, I believe. The ones that attended attended with passion, and they attended with a commitment to purchase. And that's the, the that's the essence of cigar commerce. You know, right. you got willing buyers, great enthusiastic retailers, enthusiastic manufacturers that were glad to be out of a pandemic lockout uh, environment. Uh, I believe, and Josh can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there was a clause in the SANS contract that said if we couldn't smoke, we didn't have to go forward with the show. Uh, please correct me if I'm wrong about that, Josh. But, right. you know, and that made it a, a unique moment in the post-pandemic era that that we could all get together and enjoy a cigar together and not have to be locked in a booth, uh, relegated to a booth to smoke, or, you know, we had that freedom to float in and out of the, the trade show. and. Vegas was a was a great host city. They were just post pandemic, so um, you know, put the stuff aside about scaled back booths or scaled back reception or scaled back this or that. It was a post pandemic environment where we got to eat, drink, smoke, and conduct the business of cigars in a in a free and welcoming environment. I don't see how we could want more than that. And you know, is it going to continue to evolve? Does Scott Pierce have a great vision for the future of this show? Is the board committed to making it better? Yes, yes, and yes. So I'm not sure how what more the industry could want from that. Absolutely. Josh, how do you feel about it? <clears throat> well, you know, I think it was important to regain the momentum. You know, it was a, a tough year for the year plus for the association um, on many different fronts. And, you know, being back together with the industry peers, um, you know, I always say it's the Super Bowl of the premium cigar industry. And um, it was the Super Bowl. Um, you know, you had B2B. It, it satisfied that element. The networking, it satisfied that element. I think there's been, um, you know, incremental improvements to the content. If, if the, you know, folks are attending the seminars. 
of course, there are things that can be improved. There's going to be things that, you know, next year folks are going to say we need to improve. There were things in 2019 um, that I thought could have been improved upon, and, and we worked towards some of those. So, you know, Glenn's absolutely right. It's not going to be a perfect show. Uh, given the constraints, um, I, I think that it was able to achieve the objectives. It was able to raise sufficient funds for us to continue to do um, the work that we do on the advocacy front. Um, so, you know, Glenn and I in the organization, um, we, we typically don't do a whole lot uh, with the trade show itself, other than presenting our government affairs strategy document, doing a few sessions here and there, walking around state legislators or members of Congress. Um, but I thought the planning folks, the meeting folks, um, you know, they did they did a good job with all of the constraints that they had. Now, hopefully we can scale up and, and have a, a show that satisfies, um, you know, the the will of some of the previous shows of the, you know, I remember the 2019 fantastic blowout party. That was great. I mean, you, you felt, um, you know, that you were truly connected with the community in um, something that was noteworthy. You told people, you posted pictures about it on social media um, and, and attendance wise. And, um, you know, the party itself in the, the previous year, I thought it was fantastic. The cigars were great. Um, and, and it really set things up. Obviously, um, you know, the, the, the totality of it had to be scaled back. Um, and there were constraints, some of which were uh, related to the sand, some were related to um, local governments, some were restrictions that we had to uh, face as an organization with our own budgetary constraints. So um, I'm, I'm very happy in the government affairs side of things that it allowed us to have a strong year and give us the resources for Glenn and I to do our job. Now, <clears throat> Josh, I'll let you start first on this one. Looking ahead to 2022 for next year, um, do, do you guys anticipate like a growth period of kind of bring, just, 2021 was a small show and there was a lot of factors for that. Uh, and let's just, to make this easier, let's just say that the pandemic stuff um, is relatively low and cool, and that doesn't really impact anything. Um, do you have high hopes that we'll see some people come back and there'll be some more growth building off of uh, this year's trade show? Or do we think it's going to kind of be like the same? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think there's, there's going to be definite growth. I think that, um, you know, based off of, and I was with Scott and Aaron um, having lunch today, we were talking about, you know, how things are trending. Right now, uh, we are outpacing renewals from 2019 in terms of our, our retail membership. Uh, people are, are hungry for product. People are hun hungry for learning best practices. There are a lot of new cigar lounges uh, that are uh, taking shape in certain areas. Uh, so getting those new members um, and new establishments involved with the association and really making sure that everyone in the industry understands that this is a landmark event that uh, folks need to attend. But I, I expect there, um, you know, in, and without going into too much detail, uh, in January, there's going to be some big announcements, um, things that Scott's working on um, as we speak, um, that will make sure that 2022 is defined as success and growth. 
Absolutely. Glenn? Couldn't agree more. Can't add more than that. Uh, <laughs> now, nah, this, this industry is it, in one of its most robust economic times in its history. Mm-hmm. And it's in this post-pandemic universe, we are blessed in that regard. Uh, what are the reasons for that? There's, you know, we've all heard the same stuff. People have more time. They want to relax because of the pressures and stresses of, of life and what the last year and a half have meant to us all psychologically as friends and family and work. Uh, and uh, the when you hear every single, I cannot think of a manufacturer that I've spoken to that's not selling <coughs> everything they make. Well, and, and you're right, Glenn. I think that looking at all of the <coughs> that are that are at play, that it, it is it is trending and tracking to be a strong 2022 all across the board. And it were decisions that were made going back several years. And I think a lot of this growth is due in part to a favorable regulatory government affairs apparatus. Um, you know, we, we've been touting this statistic in, in every show that we've done, in every marketing piece that we're putting together. There were no tax increases, federal and state, this year. There were new, no new regulations that were, um, you know, put into effect this year. And you had, uh, you know, favorable victories in the courts where for a whole year's time, manufacturers got to introduce new products. And, and have regulatory certainty. So, you know, couple that with that increased demand uh, of folks and the time and new cigar enthusiasts, you know, people are at home, they wanna try some craft bourbon with a craft, you know, premium handmade cigar. Um, I, I think that we, we are in the midst of a, a mini boom, so to speak, and um, hopefully that can continue in, into next year. And I know that we're gonna have uh, a lot of pressure uh, because there are some new things on the regulatory and legislative horizon that are very scary and intimidating. And I know we'll go through some of that uh, over the course of the show. But, um, you know, if if I could say, if we could replicate in, in our department, Glenn and, and myself and Ryan and Patrick on, on our government affairs team, if we can have the same atmosphere that we had in 2021, translate over to 2022 we'll take that any any day because we had more wins and there weren't any substantial uh losses where where we took it on the chin absolutely um i do want to get to um i kind of glazed over this in the beginning because of the technical issue that i had i kind of forgot all about it but i want to hit our our cigars of the night segment really quickly um which is brought to you by two guys cigars.com uh, I am smoking the Davidoff Dominicana Toro, uh, and you can find this cigar at twoguyscigars.com. For $24.19, a single or box of 10 will set you back to $28.99, and that's at the number twoguyscigars.com. Uh, gentlemen, what are we smoking tonight? After you, Josh. I'm smoking a Flying Pig Liga n- number 9. Mm. Um, I enjoy this cigar. And um, I, I like the traditional stogie. I love the, the, the size and shape. And, um, you know, this is one where I, when I'm smoking cigars and, you know, today today was a good day to enjoy. I, I think I'm on my fourth or fifth one. Um, but I, I will have two or three, uh, you know, 
in a given day when I'm enjoying this per, uh, particular cigar. That's a great cigar. I love that size too. It's a fun size. I don't smoke a lot of the pigs. Uh, I love the I love the number nine line, um, but those pigs are fun. When I do have some, they're they're great. Uh, Glenn, what are you smoking over there? I am smoking a store exclusive. Uh, my friend, my friend uh, Phil Ledbetter, and uh, his partner out there that have Up Down Cigar in Chicago, Illinois. This La Aurora, and I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but the Hordiage, Hordiage, uh, a La Aurora exclusive blend that Phil and his team worked on with La Aurora. Uh, it's it's available, you know, again. Ex- exclusively at Updown in Chicago, and I was out there last summer, and he introduced me to it, and I immediately said, I'll, I'll buy a bundle, wow. showed me a bundle, and uh, and I, I really I really fell for it, so it's always great when, you know, you, you find these nuggets uh, like this that are only available in Chicago, Illinois, or you go to another store, and it's only available there, and where the, the retailer worked in hand and glove and concert with the manufacturer to come up with something unique for their store. I think those are great stories. He, he has a uh, top 10 cigar, uh, one of my favorites also, and I, I just can't get them now, but the uh, Tatuaje uh, Queen Beefcake uh, oh. that is another store exclusive, and I love that cigar. I mean, uh, that was over COVID. I was located in my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania for, for two months. And, uh, I ordered, uh, two bundles of those and that was the go-to smoke and the funny, but kind of crazy story. Um, I had COVID for, you know, four days, no taste, no smell. And I still smoked those queen beef cakes. So I, 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 I it's not medically correct, but I think that it had something to do with curing <laughs> me. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, I haven't had that myself. The it's so it's funny. We're gonna actually gonna roll right into the news segment too, but it's an interesting one because I kind of can tie you guys into it too. Um, our cigar industry news segment is brought to you by McAuliffe Cigars. If you head over to McAuliffeCigars.com, you can sign up to be an official McAuliffe ambassador. You can get your ambassador coin, your ambassador number, and while you're at it, pick up a McAuliffe tasting passport today. Um, so our news today comes, I just had it right in front of, there it is. Uh, the FDA's Mitch Zeller retiring in April, 2022. Mitch Zeller, the head of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products, will retire next April. According to a report from the Washington Post, Zeller will retire in April, 2022. His tenure as director for Center of Tobacco Products began in March, 2013, after he took over for Dr. Lawrence Dayton. Um, so... How does this impact the industry? Do you guys feel this is a bad thing, good thing? What's the what's the PCA's feeling uh, at this time with a change like that? This is a major development. Um, you know, we have the opportunity for 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 change, and you know, you have a new FDA commissioner going through a confirmation process. Um, you have the, the new, you know, that FDA commissioner will likely be involved in selecting a new CTP director. And, um, you know, it's no surprise that, um, you know, Mitch Zeller was no friend to the industry. You know, we've had, battled with 
um, you know, the director on, on several occasions. We've had productive conversations as well um, with the FDA at large. But my hope is that, you know, we're never going to get somebody in that role that's pro-tobacco. That is, but what we can hope for and, um, you know, encourage the, the agency and, and, the, and the selection process of, of this person uh, that somebody that understands the distinctiveness of each product category and understands that the the mold and the regulations for cigarettes and premium cigars and e-cigarettes, they're all vastly different. Any type of tobacco product that you have to look at it um, at, at each category type. Um, so, you know, there this is going to be a, a challenging few months, as, as we referenced earlier. Um, you have the study from the National Academies of Sciences is likely to be released this April. You have uh, the flavor ban on cigars likely to be released in April um, or, or, or in the, the spring. And then you have the change in the CTP director that's going to, to concurrently occur. So, you know, these are some major shifts in the old for the industry. But, um, I, I look at it this way. We're, we have to ensure that um, in every level that we as an association, uh, we have to find somebody that at least understands the, the distinctiveness of the product categories uh, as it comes to regulation. I mean, the, the director, the previous director, came from the of some of their uh, decisions. So um, there's a lot of opportunities, but we, we could find out that we're in an equally as tough situation with, with the new director. Um, but I, I don't believe it, it, it could get uh, much worse. That's, that's my take. Glenn? It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It makes you want to believe, believe in the spirit of Anything wants you to make you believe in the spirit of Christmas. It was reading that. Wow. <laughs> I need the politically correct answer. That, that's what. That's what I, I. I could have said the same thing, but. Oh, you took. Oh, like you didn't. <laughs> you basically said it was a Christmas miracle. Well, we knew about ten days ago when this was was transpiring. We had a text chain, um, and one of our members was like, "Should we throw a retirement?" Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, I've been in, let's put it this way. I mean, I've seen a lot of tobacco control measures and personalities and stuff over the last uh, plus decade. And uh, I've been in public meetings and I've been in private meetings with Mitch Zeller. Um, the one thing I've learned, and we're going to talk about this when we talk about New Zealand during the show, but... The one thing I've learned in this business is that it can always get worse. Uh, no matter what you talk about, I never cease to be amazed by the creativity of our opposition. But Mitch Zeller, if you read the book, uh, a, a Question of Intent, and I encourage you to do it. Anybody that's interested in the history of 
the pursuit of the federal government to regulate tobacco, read the book, A Question of Intent. And it will give you uh, some, you know, Tom Clancy style of, of novel reading that's completely nonfiction on the history of the, of the pursuit of the federal government to control tobacco, to regulate tobacco. And Mitch Zeller was there at the origins of that, origins. And, you know, he's, he's had an agenda. The agency's had an agenda since the uh, Tobacco Control Act was, was signed by the president. And um, there, you're, you're not going to, Josh said it best, I mean, you're not going to find somebody that's pro-tobacco, but you, what you pray for in that position is objectivity. And I think, I think our industry, collective industry, education campaigns, the briefings we've held uh, with that agency, and I'm talking, you know, probably probably pushing a dozen briefings that just this sector of the tobacco industry has done since the regulatory program was originally put in place in 2009 um, to educate their staff uh, consistently on the difference in the product. And I can assure you, and I, I'm not blowing smoke up anybody's skirt about this. I can assure you, given the questions that I heard between 2010 and 2020 in those agency briefings, if it weren't for those briefings, if it weren't for the litigation, if it weren't for the research that's been done on this industry uh, since the beginning of this regulatory threat, we would have been treated like a pack of cigarettes. I am absolutely 100% convinced of that. And if you read the final rule that came out in 2016, it was written to equate this with a pack of cigarettes. If it weren't for the collective advocacy and regulatory and litigation measures that this industry has undertaken, but I really, really point to the research component of it as a, as a pivotal piece of the strategy that has worked to prevent the agency from treating this differently. And I tell you that it can all be surmised in, in this, is that when the agency just considered the exemption considered, not granted, but they legitimately considered it, it meant that our message was getting through in one form or, or another. So it's been a mixed bag of tricks, but, but now we move on and it's the proverbial, you know, Washington turnstile. And uh, we'll find out what we get during this confirmation process. But I tell you what, there's a book to be written about the last decade with regard to relations to the agency and, and Mr. Zeller. So... Move on, move on, move on. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, no problem. We can totally do that. Um, <clears throat> no, not, 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 not you, the agency. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know. Well, we have a lot of things we need to get to anyway. Um, so... Uh, but no, that so it's a win for the cigar industry, and you know, and you know, like you say, it could always be worse. Uh, and we're gonna talk about how much worse it can be, because uh, we've already kind of danced around it a few times, and I'm so eager to get it out there, because I, I, it's, it's something that as a as a regular cigar smoker and who's you know involved in the cigar media, and you know, I'm not just, um, you know, once in a while kind of cigar guy, it, but it scares me. Uh, and if you smoke cigars and you love this lifestyle, it should scare you too. Um, there has been reports, and it's and I'll tell you, I'll tease this too for those who don't know. 
it's already here in the United States, and we'll we'll and I'll explain that after with the boys. Um, but in New Zealand, there is um, talk that a new law could be put into place. And you guys can feel free to jump in and, and, and be more specific with it because I know you guys know it better than I do. Uh, but there is specific language out there in New Zealand that says that there is a law they're trying to put into effect or, or a bill or whatever that would restrict the purchasing of tobacco products from uh, everyone born after a certain year, regardless of their age, for the rest of their life. Um I saw a news report for something very, very almost identical proposed right here in my backyard in Massachusetts in the town of Brookline. Um, Glenn, I'll let you go first. What kind of threat level as cigar smokers in the United States should we feel right now from this? Well, let's talk about what a threat it is in New Zealand first. Um, and True. I'll, All right, that's fair. Yeah, I went back to my notes on on this because, um, not not just tacitly, but but formally, I believe we're we are going to involve ourselves in that discussion uh, as to what impact we can have. I don't know, but we are going to involve ourselves in that discussion. And last this past August. Uh, when this was originally floated, it's just now getting a lot of press because the health minister uh, had a proclamation about taking it to the New Zealand parliament. But um, this was originally floated back in back in August. And I sent a message to our brethren in Europe. And what we're going to do is we're going to file a public comment under the umbrella of PCA, CRA, Cigar Rights of Europe, Cigar Rights of the World, uh, literally with with uh, Jeremiah Mirafield and company yep. and our brethren in, in Europe and um, and at least go on record opposing this. Um, I think that's important for anybody that enjoys cigars in New Zealand, and I'm sure there's a few. Um, what is dangerous about this, and it's evolving into your Brookline discussion, but in the world of tobacco control, bad ideas spread quickly. Um, I'll give you an example one time. Uh, it came up in Europe about the proposition that anybody that that anybody that touches nicotine, it has to be prescribed by a doctor. That nicotine would need to be prescribed like a narcotic. That's crazy. By a doctor. That's crazy. And lo and behold, and lo and be, this was years ago. And lo and behold, what happened? Somebody put in a bill in Oregon to do the same thing, and I'm, it didn't go anywhere. But that's not the point. Bad ideas and tobacco control spread quickly. So what happened with New Zealand? Well, now they're talking about it in Australia less than 72 hours later. It's like the plain packaging debate. You know, plain packaging spread from Australia, and then it spreads to Canada, and then it becomes a debate in England. Uh, it's ridiculous how these ideas catch on like wildfire and, and threaten this industry uh, specifically because, once again, the target is vape. The target is e-cigarettes. The target is real cigarettes. And we get caught up in all that. And it's the demonization of tobacco as a whole. They put us in this basket. And once again, like that final rule, they try to treat us like a pack of cigarettes. Um, so it needs, to, it needs to die a death in New Zealand. It needs to be stopped worldwide. Frankly, these countries, the cigar-producing countries, 
uh, likewise need to get involved with us. And I think we're going to at least extend that invitation. Um, and I, for example, I know that uh, going back to the plain packaging debate, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, and Cuba uh, filed a lawsuit in the international court against the plain packaging rules in Australia. It, I just threw that out as an example of where the international community also needs to get involved in these debates. Um, they've got a vested interest in it. So once again, as you're, you brought up before the show, now apparently Brookline wants to, and Brookline's got a history of these things. If I remember correctly, uh, the National Association of Tobacco, Alex, got involved in a fight in Brookline. I think it was Brookline. Or either that or it was another community in, in your greater neck of the woods of Massachusetts that outright wanted to ban the sale of tobacco. And the, the health, the problem in Massachusetts is the local health departments have a lot of power, a lot of power that's even greater than that of the legislature uh, to, to regulate tobacco. Um, and it might have been Worcester, Massachusetts, that tried to ban the sale of tobacco as a whole, but it was one of you folks up there. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. But like what happened on that original proposition to ban the sale of tobacco, the citizens need to rile up. And, you know, I'm sure the convenience store market's going to be involved in, in that debate. I'm sure the National Association of Tobacco Outlets will be involved in that fight. But it's another example where we all got to band together, get our message across, and draw our own proverbial line in the sand. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, big, the best part of that whole thing was what you said right at the end. We got to band together. Um, and that's something that manufacturers have said to me, you know, to my face, you know, brand owners who've said, you know, we fight for shelf space and the shops and all that. And, you know, we're, we all run businesses and it's competitive, but at the same time, you know, as an industry, as manufacturers, we need to stick together and help each other because we all face a greater enemy that's bigger than all of us combined. Uh, and, and that's so true. And I, and I always echo that message because it needs to be out there. Um, and I'll keep saying it, you know, uh, because it's important and it's true. And you know, if you don't want to hear us talk about it on the show, then don't listen to the show. But um, it, it, it means well, that much to all of us. Um, this well, stuff. Matt, let's you and I follow up about Brookline uh, this this coming week. Let's you and I compare notes and, uh, and talk about what we can say and, and put out there for Brookline. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Josh, where do you uh, where do you stand on this? I think a lot of this is a stress test. Um, I think that uh, you have a very well-funded apparatus internationally of anti-tobacco groups that goes all the way to the World Health Organization. And, um, you know, they're fortified. They're trying new things. They're very creative. They're very aggressive. And, um, you know, in a country that has a history of, you know, very anti-tobacco policies like New Zealand, it might be able to fly. You know, here in the United States, the political system is very conducive for us to put up a fight to fight back. And, you know, we, we have not only the legislative process, we have the connection with the executive process, we have various levels of government, and then we also have recourse in the court system, uh, which is, is, is also very important. So um, I think that, you know, is, is it a threat? Yes. You know, is it uh, a threat in, in New Zealand? Um, I think a little bit more so than the United States. Uh, but, you know, they're going to try 
you know, various different methods. This is just one in their uh, creative toolbox to continue to chip away and restrict uh, tobacco con or tobacco uh, control measures. So, you know, I, I think we, I agree with both of you. We have to be fortified as an industry, consumers, retailers, and manufacturers fighting back. Um, fortunately, we have, uh, you know, we're in the uh, era of data, science, and research matter. Um, that's on our side. We don't shy away from that. And it's not industry data necessarily. Uh, the FDA and the NIH data, that's something that is cited in all of the meetings that I take, that Glenn takes, whether it's at the state level or the, the federal level with the FDA, with the White House. Um, we are beating that drum uh, persistently. I mean, we have done, I'm on, I'm approaching my third year with the association and um, we're, we're um, going about a thousand meetings total uh, that we've had with policymakers throughout the different levels of government in that time period. And, um, you know, they get more and more productive. You, if you, you know, look back and three years ago, there were offices that, you know, didn't know what a premium cigar is. And there's still those offices, but we're seeing less and less of that. We had a very aggressive and robust public awareness campaign. Um, you know, prior to COVID, we would host two events a month at our office educating people about what is a premium cigar, what are the usage patterns, what are our, uh, you know, why, you know, we hear that it, we don't have a youth access issue. Why? What are the statistics say? What does the data say? Uh, but Glenn met, mentioned a, a, a really interesting point about uh, Massachusetts in that the local health departments have considerable power and authority. That's something that we're fighting in a uh, half dozen states plus is local authority, local control, um, where, you know, it, it the anti-tobacco groups might not be successful at the federal level. They not, might not be successful at even the state level, but they will introduce a bill to allow local authority for, for taxation, for tobacco control. We have an active bill in Florida that we're fighting um, against right now that would grant those localities control because the resources of uh, the anti-tobacco groups, the you know Bloomberg organizations, they can fight um, in New York City, in Chicago, in LA, in even small communities and throw thousands of, and hundreds of thousands of dollars at these campaigns. You know, we're, we're, we've stretched our resources and um, the industry has stressed its resources, spending millions of dollars on lawsuits and advocacy year in and year out. And we'll continue to do that, but you know, in earnest, I can say as, as PCA and, and a lot of the, the partner organizations we work with, if something pops up in, in, in Brookline, we can't throw a million dollars at it. So that's why the, the, the local authority measures in these states are, are very critical that we put up a, a fight against. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, when I first read about uh new zealand i was like wow and then i just happened to be thumbing through the internet reading articles as i do i believe i read a lot of news online and i just happened to stumble upon oh what's this brookline massachusetts and then i was like oh son of a bitch and i was just like here we go and it's so true like like glenn said like bad ideas spread like wildfire and it's like you know you know you're already seeing it going everywhere else 
Um, and yeah, continuing to fortify organizations like PCA and, and CRA and all that, you know, it, it, it helps, you know, the more resources that you guys have, the better, you know, the better equipped you guys are for, for the legislative battles that you guys fight. And, you know, and I think it's important to echo that message all the time because uh, stuff like this happens. And you know what? Another good point I forgot all about in my show preparation for tonight is you guys both touched on the plain packaging law, which is also another thing that has begun to go into effect in parts of the world. And, you know, how long until stuff like that makes its way to the United States? Um, it's another one of those things where it, it, it comes as a personal attack uh, to this industry. Um, well, we have- compared to those other countries that have done plain packaging, we've got something they don't. That's where our First Amendment kicks in. And, and you know, you get into a legitimate discussion about restraint of speech. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, look at this, you know, this band. This band that I'm smoking says La Aurora. That's it. It says La Aurora. It doesn't say smoke me. It doesn't even say the word cigar on it. So does the government walk in and say you can't put that on a tobacco product just because it's tobacco? I, I don't think that holds up in court. And compared to the rest of the international community, I do think our Constitution protects us on things like that. It doesn't mean we won't have a fight. And it doesn't mean you – I mean, right now the cigarette industry is in court trying to prevent the graphic, the graphic warning labels – on cigarette packaging and believe me and it is not i'm not being overly dramatic graphic graphic depiction of decayed body parts on cigarette packaging is is a horrible precedent for the cigar industry and you've got to keep an eye out on these things because the regulatory process can be twisted and turned and that's that's where the the mid-sellers of the world come into play they are magicians at twisting and turning you know, that graphic warning debate started bloody near a decade ago. And uh, there was a victory in Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sent the agency back to the drawing board, and here we are back again. Well, I can assure you that's what they'd want to do. They'd want to do the cigar industry. I mean, their original proposition for warning labels on cigar packaging was 50%. 50% of a box covered by a warning label. As our litigation counsel put it, we would become nothing more than a billboard for government speech. And that was his classic words in, in federal court. So it's the reason it's the reason the machine can never be off. The litigation machine, the regulatory machine, the political machine, it's the reason we cannot rest one moment anymore for the rest of the history of this industry. And and the anti-tobacco groups continue to push the goalposts, you know, when when anything comes up like you know, when T21 went through, you had in Hawaii T99, where you would have to be 99 years old to purchase tobacco products in, in Hawaii. That was, that was a, a past, you know, piece of legislation. So there, there's a lot of crazy ideas that, that keep popping up. And like one, one of the other things is the whole characterizing flavors concept, um, where, and I know we'll, we'll get into that a, a little bit later in the show, but you know, they want to continue to push those goalposts where, you know, Matthew, if you describe a, a cigar as having hints of cocoa or chocolate or cinnamon, you're basically saying that this is, you know, a, a flavored product and that, you know, what, that would be susceptible to bans and, and you wouldn't be able to provide those descriptions. 
subscription notes in your show. And, and again, I think that Glenn's point about the First Amendment, that's the beauty of it. We, we, are, we are going to actively fight back on behalf of the manufacturers and retailers that want to have shelf talkers that describe the tasting notes of these cigars that we enjoy, but also for our, our, our friends in the cigar media that want to accurately describe what these products taste like. Um, they might not have any actual flavoring in them, uh, but that they are good ways to describe what people are having in their sensory experience. Well, what's funny about that too is we see the same thing in the liquor and the wine industries. You know, how many times have you <clears throat> you opened like Cigar and Spirits magazine, right? Or you opened like Wine Spectator and you're reading about different bottles of wine, different bottles of whiskey. Now, this wine is a California red uh, Cabernet with hints of uh, plum and chocolate, and but it's the same shit. Uh, whiskey, it's, oh, this whiskey's great. It's yeah, hints of honey, and, and but it, it's, it's it's literally the same thing. It's flavor notes you pick up, and how you know, and why should tobacco be punished because they have it too? You know, it's like one can argue, you know, and this kind of, we, we can kind of transition into the to like the flavored talk here. Um, you know, you go into a liquor store. And you go to the vodka aisle. That's all I even need to say. I don't even have to give you any other example. Go to the vodka aisle in a liquor store. What do you see? Whipped cream, mm. cherry, strawberry, orange. And you're going to stand there and you're going to say, well, the flavored tobacco or quote-unquote flavored tobacco products uh, or talking about having, you know, fruit notes in the cigars. Well, that, you know, enables kids to want to smoke. So you're telling me that kids don't want to drink alcohol too? Not just because their friends are doing it and it's cool. Or, you know, they just they want to get smashed on a Friday night like all the adults. But because, oh, I went into a liquor store and I saw vodka, whipped cream. I was like, ooh, I got to have that. You know, it that argument could be made. And it's the same thing. But, you know, when it comes to the alcohol industry, no one says boo because, you know, it's it's alcohol. Everybody wants that. Um, There's certainly a double standard there. I mean, it, it is one of those things where, uh, you know, with, with tobacco products, there's a lot of emphasis and rightfully so on, on youth access. You know, the average person has their first premium cigar at the average age of 30. So, you know, this is an adult product. You don't see kids on the playground smoking premium cigars. And we forcefully push forth that argument um, in, in all of our meetings. But when it comes to alcohol, let, let's compare. Look at the rates of youth access uh, to uh, alcoholic beverages and all the different fr fruity flavors that you can find at eye level in a in a gas station, but yep. you know we're we're providing age verified locations. Um, you know I, I mentioned I'm involved. I, I work at uh, Embassy Cigar Lounge on Saturdays, um, which has been my my new passion and hobby on, on the weekends. You know we're we're, we're I age, you know, we're providing that age verified uh, solution to folks. We're IDing people, we're checking people, and um, you know that there's there isn't as much of that emphasis. There isn't that um, apparatus going after uh, age violations on college campuses or um, you know of, of youth that are partaking in that. And and it's unfortunate that you know this. <laughs> if you smoke a cigar you know, you're in drive a car, there's no difference. But if you drink a bottle of uh, whipped cream flavored vodka and drive a car, there's significant, serious consequences. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that the, 
government and some of these legislatures had their priorities backwards. Uh, Mark Vanslet, right? Uh, one of our our good uh, listeners and watchers at home is always with us. Uh, we thanks for being here once again, Mark. Uh, but he did have a question here that I, I held on to for a little bit, just out of curiosity. Does Mr. Loop know how many tobacco-related deaths versus all tobacco-related deaths in the U.S. per year? I don't know that specific number, but I do know this anecdotally. I've always been curious about how you get a job in statistics with the Centers for Disease Control because forever and ever and ever, they've said that 480,000 people die from tobacco-related deaths, <clears throat> but yet 50% of few, fewer Americans are smoking than ever before, but yet that 480,000 figure never, never goes down. Um, so, and I do know that, that the figure for associated deaths with cigars is so statistically insignificant that it cannot be calculated. Um, I'll never forget. I'll never, I say all this anecdotally, but it's true. I'll never forget one of the first times I gave testimony in the Virginia legislature uh, against a smoking ban, and the the body parts lobby had lined up all the all the white coat doctors to come up and testify against it. And I just said one thing: I, I want to see that certificate that says cigars. And it's amazing how quiet the room can get when you say that. I pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and sorry, and no, and no silence on my part. I'm I'm in the middle of trying to do like five to ten things at once, um, so <laughs> I get distracted. Um, no, so yeah, I mean it's um, it is interesting, and it's almost like there's just a narrative out there, and that's that's just what they want to stick with. And you make a good point about how how come does if there's you know smokers. The number of smokers comes down, but yet the deaths still stay the same. And it's like you would think that, you know, it would be relative. It never, uh, cha it never changes. The no. The 480,000 figure never changes. And it won't. It won't. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, uh, that's the world we live in now. Um, so on the flavored front, uh, just to wrap that up, you know, uh, on the PCA standpoint on that, I know that there's been some people who've been critical of the PCA on not doing a better job of defending flavored tobacco, and now we're seeing it start to take effect. Like in Massachusetts, I know that in addition to you know flavored cigars and whatnot that we can't have here now, not that it's the same, but just for the example, menthol cigarettes are now a no-no in the state of Massachusetts anymore, and now you get people will be like. Do you know? <clears throat> do you know anyone who's going up to New Hampshire? They get me like a couple cartons of Newports. Um, you know, and that, that's that's the new that's the new thing here now, uh, which is interesting because you can't buy menthol cigarettes or a you know a strictly flavored cigar, uh, but you can buy marijuana now, which is crazy. I mean, 20 years ago it was the opposite, and that was normal. Now you can go buy, you can go buy a couple grams of weed at the local dispensary, but you can't have can't have menthol cigarettes. Can't have that. That's a no no. Uh, there was an article in the last two weeks that I believe that a I'll get you the specifics on it. I'll send it to you after the show. But uh, that there is a proposal that might be floated to reverse that decision in Massachusetts. That the black market is a serious deal there. Um, and the article was actually used in the Denver flavored debate 
in the last couple of weeks, this article out of Massachusetts. Really? Um, and what's crazy about all this is the FDA floated banning flavored cigars, right? Uh, in conjunction with their, their pursuit to ban menthol formally. Uh, they floated. They floated it in 2014, 15, and 16. So they're still considering it at the federal level, considering, working it, coming up with their regulatory program, whatever they, whatever you want to call it. Meanwhile, it's another example of how ideas spread. It, it hasn't stopped all of these local governments and states from pursuing the FDA objective before they even get to it. It's the ultimate in the nanny state. You know, and it's the ultimate. This this story keeps coming back to how bad ideas spread. Um, the the political agenda of our opposition is very well orchestrated, very well funded, and they know how to spread an agenda. And you know, to everybody knows it. I mean, uh, my friend Ted Ted Jackson with Ted Cigars. Um, I don't know what exactly what he charges for for his Maker's Mark bourbon. Um, cigar but it's at least i think six to eight dollars six to ten dollars a kid's not going out and buying a maker's mark cigar is that become a characterizing flavored product yeah well probably it does should it absolutely not um kids aren't buying an you know eight dollar maker's mark cigar um it's another example where we got to get you know the other side of the story out and so it doesn't get swept up in this whole giant uh, debate and I can, you know, those that are in that market, uh, the way we always put it is that there's a real big difference between regulation and prohibition. And, and you know, th there's a sector of the industry that would accept some form of regulation, but there's a big, big bloody difference between that and prohibition. Absolutely. And, and, that, and, and that's what's got to be warded off. Prohibition and, doesn't work. And, and we have fought and engaged in a lot of state level flavor, overly broad flavor issues. Glenn continues to do that. You know, at the federal level, we're going to, you know, there's going to be some big developments next year on that front. And I think Glenn is spot on. You know, we as the PCA are not in favor of prohibiting our members from selling these products. Um, we, you know, PCA along with CRA. Uh, with the lawsuits and with the engagement with the federal government, we believe that the best path forward for exempting uh, or, or, or having the least amount of regulation is for hand-rolled premium cigars that don't have the flavors or additives, that we can get an off-ramp for most of the draconian measures for that category because statistically it has the lowest level of issues with youth access um, and, and the like. So, you know, that is the North Star for the organization, but we also represent pipe tobacco, which is a flavored product. So we're, we're, we are defending that. We are defending, um, you know, at the state level. And, one, you know, we have no policy that has been written and released by the Food and Drug Administration about this pro prohibition. So, you know, before we cast an official opinion, we have to read through it, see what the effect is on our membership and engage our membership and, and you know, get their take on it. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of folks will relate to us that this is a, uh, you know, sector of their business that is worth defending. 
Now, are they the same as a you know non-flavored hand-rolled premium cigar? No, but there there is a level of advocacy where we've engaged in the past and where we will continue to engage to defend those product lines and the, the sales of our retail membership. Yeah. <clears throat> Another thing I thought about too, um, kind of on the flavor aspect when you talk about comparing to other things what about man this is how my mind works i like to compare maybe it doesn't work well but um you know we're talking about kids and the youth right and the argument being well you know it, it targets kids and it makes kids want to do it uh certainly you know, when the when the vape products really came to the top a lot of the the liquids and the 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 fl the, the liquids the whatever there is that you put inside the vape you know, I'll have these crazy, you know, cereals and ice cream and all these crazy flavors that obviously yeah, kids are going to want. And, it, oh, it, it's safer than cigarettes and smoke was the narrative that was trying to be pushed. And obviously, oh, well, kids, yeah, I can smoke and taste these things. Well, you kind of talk about, like, the marijuana thing again, right? So how does that differ from when uh, someone see – you go to a dispensary and you can buy marijuana-infused baked goods like cookies and brownies? And it's like, oh, okay. So you can eat a brownie and get really high and banged up. Kind of like drinking alcohol, too. Um, and that's, you know, but that's not the same kind of influence as a cigar that kind of tastes like chocolate, even though it's not chocolate flavored. Or even you go right into the flavored stuff, whatever. Um, it's just, it's so interesting when you look at... The Listen, not to drag this out, but... This all comes back full circle to a question and an issue that we don't talk enough about, and it's called enforcement. The agency doesn't talk enough about enforcement. The industry doesn't talk enough about enforcement. The antis against us clearly don't talk enough about enforcement, but that's what this comes down to. And statistically speaking, premium handmade cigars do not have a youth access issue. It's right. a proven bloody fact. And even if you take the entire tobacco universe as a whole, the FDA has done, this is on their site, the FDA has done over a million, a million compliance inspections. And I'm not making that number up. They've done over a million compliance inspections of convenience stores, cigar stores, online, you name it. It's all been tested. And you know what? There was over a 95% compliance rate. And that's all tobacco, 95%. The National Association of Tobacco Outlets, uh, they, they use a study that was done by, it was a, like a school administrators group, schools education associated group on youth access to tobacco. And you know what it proved? The primary access point for, for tobacco, illegal tobacco sales, is not sales at the register. It's social sources. It's Uncle Jim bought it for me. It's daddy bought it for me. It's the guy that I gave $20 to outside the convenience store bought it for me. Yep. It's not at the register. And when you've got a 94 to 96% compliance rate, it means the whole youth access to tobacco is a fiction. It makes it, again, statistically insignificant. If you want to attack, and I, I was in a meeting, I was in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Mitch Zeller on this very subject. And he was obsessed about the other 5%. Okay, we'll go after the 5%, but that doesn't mean you shut down the entire market. And when you've got compliance inspectors out there going in and making sure, 
I've seen the violation letters. It's not the premium cigar market. And that's where this discussion should come to a screeching halt. Not just you and me, but I'm talking about the industry as a whole. Oh, I get it. I get and, it. And this week, you know, Senator Burr in the, the confirmation hearing uh, for Dr. Califf, the uh, nominee for the new FDA uh, chair, would, you know, he put it best that the Center for Tobacco Products, they need somebody to get their the house in order. Get the house in order was the quote because they their priorities have been screwed up, have been influenced by, you know, these draconian measures that focus on the, the 5% versus providing a pathway for established businesses, historical businesses uh, to continue to conduct themselves in a legal way. This is a legal product that is being sold to legal adults. And that can't be overemphasized enough because you have in, in, in the cannabis debate, you know, it's still an illegal product federally, but you have these markets and, and no one's concerned about that, you know, or very few people are concerned about it. And some of those people are the ones that are so concerned about combustible tobacco products like premium cigars or are crafting legislation and regula regulations that are too broad that encompass our product categories when it shouldn't. You know, and it's interesting. <clears throat> um, another topic I wanted to cover, I think kind of slides right in here nice. You know, a lot of people have been critical of PCA not being more aggressive on Tobacco 21. What are, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And, and, and in defense, I should say, as on behalf of the PCA. Yeah, you know, I, I think that I cited the statistic, the average age of, of 30 is the when folks have their first premium cigar. Um, we were arguing at the concurrent time uh, about how this is not a product for youth access. We were able to get the FDA to acknowledge that we don't have a youth access issue. Um, so, you know, in, in that debate, we did not oppose, uh, you know, forcefully the the raising from 18 to 21. It, the, the timing of it, we could not throw the kitchen sink at that campaign. And unfortunately, the industry at large, the tobacco industry, you had all of the big players that were supporting the raise from 18 to 21. All the major cigarette companies were such a microcosm of 0.02% of the industry that you know we would not have been successful in, in that and we would have lost a ton of resources fighting a battle that we couldn't win. When I took over government relations for, for PCA, um, I wanted to address achievable victories uh, and, and, and defend the industry where we had the best shot at winning. So, you know, we, we haven't gone down the rabbit hole of every single um, thing that pops up. We would be playing constant whack-a-mole and we would lose the, the association. Um, you know, in that debate, we made some arguments. Um, we we, we circled, uh, circulated talking points uh, about premium cigars, its, its usage patterns, its health effects, all of the data and evidence on our side. Uh, we did make mention that we think it's improper for uh, 
military personnel in particular. Um, and, and I think that that debate has been exhausted on the alcohol front as well, that if you are, are serving your country, um, you should be able to have uh, uh, adult beverages and adult tobacco products um, if you can give your life for your country. Um, nobody, I, 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 I can speak personally uh, for myself, and, I, and I'm sure Glenn would agree, no one liked the raising of the, the age from 18 to 21, but it didn't affect our major demographic it didn't have a major hit. And I know that folks that are, you know, 19, 20 years old are, are, are disappointed that this, this took shape. And, and I would feel disappointed if, if, if they were in, in that. I started enjoying premium cigars when I was in college and I was 19 years old. Um, so, you know, there are those outliers, unfortunately, that got swept up in a ultimately bad policy. Uh, but I could not in full faith, and our team at the time could not in full faith go to our, our board of directors and say, we have a path to victory to fight this. So, you know, that's that's a, a brutally honest take on how that shaped out. Glenn? Can't add to that. I just knew at the time that that went through, we had to pick our political battles very, very carefully. And at the time I was uh, still with CRA. And uh, you, you can't take every political battle. It's like what Josh said. And, and frankly, the biggest motivating factor there is Big Tobacco wanted it. Uh, Philip Morris publicly, and I don't mind saying them by name because they were very, very public in, in their advocacy of it, is that Philip Morris wanted it and who spearheaded it but Mitch McConnell. And, and if it was attached to a spending bill at the end of that given session, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but I remember it happening. And I remember, you know, Mitch McConnell was the one pushing it and Philip Morris wanted it. You know, the rest of the big tobacco world wanted it. And, and you, you can't, there's only so many ways you can fight this battle. And I'd rather, I'd rather have the wins that we've gotten over the last half decade than, uh, than, as Josh put it, put our resources into one that we just couldn't, and, couldn't, and when, couldn't overcome. When it was passed, it was in late December, one of the last end of year spending things where basically they inserted it into a much larger package. And, um, you know, f folks, it, it makes it for a difficult vote. You know, who is going to oppose something in a massive package like that when there's so many other battles? What legislators are going to put their political career on the line for tobacco products in that sense? So, you know, that that was tough. We did, you know, following its its enactment, we took the agency to ta task because they did a terrible job about providing guidance to retailers uh, on how to implement the change from 18 to 21 you know, basically, they said it's immediately in effect. That's how it was written. But they provided no guidance, no materials uh, in those first few months. So you had this period of limbo where no one knew how to implement this process and procedure. You know, there was another. <clears throat> I don't have it in front of me. I, I tried to find it. I, I, I couldn't find it. But it was interesting. We have a new mayor here in the city of Boston, um, Mayor Wu. And she, uh, it was a story that came out, I want to say it was two weeks ago, 
uh, but it was very recently, and she was talking about, you know, emissions or um, carbon emissions and stuff like that, you know, green, all that stuff, and uh, trying to, to write some stuff, you know, about the way Boston invests and stuff like that. And it was funny. I saw it. I just was kind of reading through it, just like, oh, local news, what's this? And when you get down into the, oh, well, this these are the things that would be part of the bill. And it was like, emissions thing this, emissions thing this. Tobacco products, emissions thing this, emissions thing this, cars and green energy. And it just, you know, you, I, I want to touch on, you know, Josh, you, you talked about, you know, things, you know, kind of being put into play and stuff like that. It, it, we see this all the time, and I'm sure you guys do too. But you see these these bigger bills or even not even major bills, but you just you see these bills about specific things, and then they, they just, they in the bottom of the pile there, they sneak that tobacco thing in there. They're not even talking about it. They're talking about something completely different, not even related, but yet in the language, tobacco products is right in there, right in the middle. Um, how, how important, I mean, when you guys see stuff like this, or it comes up on your radar, um, you know, how do you guys respond to stuff like that, when you, when you see people trying to, trying to hide tobacco stuff and, and something as small as that. Yeah. I mean, we, we have to read the fine print every single time because and it's not just the legislative front. We're seeing initiatives that are um, done by the private sector that curtail the ability for our, our members to conduct business. You see, you know, shipping, you know, you can't ship tobacco products through FedEx currently. Yep. Um, that's it's a, an, an individual policy. We're also looking at, and, and I was talking with one of our board members about this, um, with loyalty programs with text messaging capabilities. You have basically the, the providers are preventing tobacco-related text messages from being sent to the consumer, and there's no way for the retail owner to know whether or not that was actually sent. So, you know, if, if we, as, as a cigar shop owner, if I want to send you a notice, Matt, that on your birthday, you can come and get a free cigar or, or, or a $5 discount on the cigar, that could be not, I could willingly send that and then it doesn't go through because in the fine print and the terms and conditions. Uh, of that. So, you know, we have to highlight those things. Discrimination based off of, of tobacco use is going to be something that we're going to be facing in the next five, ten years significantly. There are, in, when folks sign an employment contract, there are companies out there that basically prohibit you from using tobacco products and will fire you if you use tobacco products. So those are our the level of sophistication, again, of our opposition and how it's not only something that we have to worry about at the international, federal, state, and local levels on the legislative, regulatory, and legal fronts, we have to worry about private businesses. In order to have a uh, LEED certified building, it has to be non-smoking. So it, it's getting in into the weeds and just letting folks know what what's happening working with the stakeholders to see if we can reverse this and i've reached out to the association um, that deals with a lot of the text sms uh, texting uh, software platforms 
and we're, we're going to try and negotiate. If, if we can determine that everyone that these text messages is going to is over the age of 21, why can't we send those messages? You know, it, 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 it is preposterous. So, you know, engagement, um, awareness, engagement, and activation, uh, we, we have to be ready and prepared on many different frontiers. You know, there's another thing um, kind of fits this topic as well. I was having a conversation with the owner of a major retailer in my area. I won't say who, but um, some of you guys may be able to figure it out. Um, who told me that at one point in time, uh, his credit card processor called him up and said, yeah, we can't do business anymore because it's tobacco products. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, what? Yeah. You know, and, and then and that, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we've seen people have to switch uh, credit card processing um, recently to our affinity partners and ones that do sp tobacco specific sales. Um, you know, on the banking side, that's also a, a very, very scary thing because, you know, is it possible or plausible in the next five to 10 years? you could see a major financial institution say you're not allowed to bank with us because you sell tobacco products. So, um, you know, our playbook and the number of issues that we face in any given year continues to grow because we are facing new things that, you know, we are not a tobacco only organization anymore. We've had to get into, you know, complex financial services, complex employment, um, commerce, trade, and the level of sophistication uh, of our staff has had to grow and we've had to educate ourselves and work with manufacturers and retailers to understand any given issue that they face. Um, and, and, you know, it's Glenn, myself, Ryan, uh, and uh, Patrick Anderson, our, our consultant working on this team. And, you know, we, we, we did we did a count uh, a few weeks ago for our strategy document of what we're preparing. Last year, we sifted through 13,000 state-level pieces of legislation, 13,000. And, um, you know, that, that number is just going to grow and grow. And we've activated on uh, about 60 campaigns this year um, where we think we can have an impact and where we did have a, a positive impact. Absolutely. Um, it, it, and I think you touched on it before the next five to 10 years, you know, seeing more and more discrimination. Um, you know, I guess lightly we will, we'll touch on, we'll touch on that. You know, where do you see, you know, in addition to that, looking down the line, five, 10, 15 years from now, uh, what are the biggest, what are some of the other bigger challenges that the industry faces that maybe we didn't talk about or, or mention tonight? already i think in, in glenn I'll, I'll kick this one over to you i would just add that it's licensing and zoning um at, at, at the local level you know being able to establish businesses um being able to you know retain your licensing um you know we, we saw a lot of stuff you know with with covid and the restrictions there were, were, you know, businesses were essentially forcefully shut down uh, for a given period of time because they were worried about in the future losing their licenses by these governing bodies. 
and um, you know, as we get more and more localized, that be becomes more of an increasing threat. Um, there's another thing that kind of came up on the radar earlier this year that some people have been asking me to uh, to bring up to the PCA, um, which I, I asked Glenn about it at the show back in July, but since we're here and we're live and it's on the record, um, <clears throat> in the state of Connecticut, there was a um, there was a bill passed that would prohibit smoking indoors, and a lot of the cigar shop owners down there started to freak out and all that. Um, saying that, you know, the PCA left them high and dry on that. Uh, what What is the official response from the PCA to those people in Connecticut? Let me go back to your previous question about the, the crystal ball into the future issues to worry about. Here's, here's one that I've tucked away for a long time and I still consider it a, a looming threat. Yep. I've got a letter. I've got a letter from Altria. To the FDA, I have physically got a copy of the letter that advocates banning uh, any form of tobacco sales except a, a behind the counter. It would de facto ban the walk-in humidor in every cigar shop in America. Um, the very fact that that was floated to a federal agency, I think, is a very dangerous thing. Has it gotten traction? No, not at this juncture. Could it under a more zealous uh, CTP director? Yeah. But if I were looking, you know, five years plus down the road at a threat, I consider that a, a true threat that would really uh, rip at the cultural fabric of, of this industry. So that's what my crystal ball uh, future fight um, that I put out there. To answer your question, um, I called eight legislative offices in the Connecticut legislature. And I pause on this because I, uh, it was an amazing trilogy, an amazing series of discussions. Um, in, and of those eight, it included the two of the offices of the chief patrons of the marijuana bill. And let's not mistake this. It was a marijuana bill. And it was a vape bill. It was not a cigar bill. And none, none, and I none of the eight key legislative offices that I spoke with felt like the cigar shops of Connecticut would be impacted by a marijuana slash vape smoking restriction bill here's my question back to you tonight and if i were up there and i would love to be with you because i love boston and we drove over to connecticut could you and i have a cigar in a cigar shop tonight together in connecticut yes i put that back to you Matt. then why are we having this discussion and I don't say that to be a, a, a jerk. I say that for dramatic effect. Mm -hmm. Because if you, you and I could get together tonight, drive over from Massachusetts to Connecticut, and you and I could enjoy a cigar in a cigar shop tonight. And I think that's where this discussion is. Um, no one that I've spoken to, and I, I've stayed in touch with, with various retailers in the state, 
since that law took effect. And I go back to the PCA release that we put out shortly thereafter, after our, well, it might've been leading into October 1st or right after October 1st, when the marijuana slash vape bill took effect, business as usual. And until someone tells me otherwise, I consider it, we consider it business as usual. And folks are enjoying cigar shops, cigars and cigar shops in Connecticut tonight. And until I hear otherwise, I don't think it stands as the legislative threat that it's been purported to be. Uh, if things change, we'll attack it. If things change, we'll dive into the legislature. If things change, we'll rally the troops. But there's some amazing cigar shops in the great state of Connecticut that are doing business as usual tonight. And I think that's where this debate needs to be left until we hear otherwise. And, and the only thing I would add to that is that, um, you know, we work hand in hand with the Connecticut State Association, you know, Brian Shapiro and their contract lobbyist that has done a, a great job in, in that state for a number of years. And, uh, you know, the, the statement that the PCA released was a joint statement uh, with the Connecticut Association. Um, their boots on the ground, they are folks that understand um, Connecticut better than anyone else. And that, that is the position that they took was the same position that the PCA took. And we stay in monthly contact with, with Brian and the Connecticut Cigar Association. Uh, everybody is keeping their ear to the ground on this. There's a great deal of diligence and effort that is going to be consistently putting into monitoring any threat. And that threat exists anywhere. It exists anywhere. But great cigars are being enjoyed in great cigar shops in Connecticut tonight. And, and uh, as far as the political looming threat, we'll cross that bridge. But it's business as usual as far as we're concerned. Guys, before we end the show and we round it out, I want to hit our last segment, our top three segment brought to you by Room 101 Cigars. Room 101 is more than just a cigar brand. It's a lifestyle brand. Um, top three things, and you guys can both answer this together. Um, the top three things that people don't know about PCA, whether it's stuff you guys do or it could be anything. Um, that most people don't know that they should know. This Ooh, includes industry, wow. consumers, like maybe like the things that just people don't realize that don't get talked about enough. This is the podium to make sure it gets said. I also, go ahead, Josh. I, I got I got two for you. So Glenn, you got to come up with the third one. <laughs> uh, I, I think you know. I, I'm glad it's not three each. I think. Uh, <laughs> CigarAction.org, that is a, a uh, best kept secret. Um, that was developed as a consumer resource, um, you know, for our retailers to share with their consumers to engage uh, on, on the fight. I mean, we work hand in hand with CRA, um, but we also have that resource in itself uh, to get up to the date information, uh, you know, to our retailers for them to then utilize with their individual consumer bases. And then I would say the other thing, um, you know, for, for a lot of folks that 
um, tangentially know about the Premium Cigar Association, uh, the first and foremost thought is the trade show. And obviously, that I've said the trade show is the Super Bowl of the cigar and the premium cigar industry, and it's important. But, um, you know, we're, we are more than just a trade show organization. And, you know, for, for the, the year uh, that we did not have the show in, in, in 2020, I, I, was, I was amazed that um, there were folks that didn't renew their membership because they thought it was a ticket to the trade show. And I think that it's important to get past that thought that, you know, of, of the woes and all the issues that the association underwent because of the pandemic, um, advocacy never stopped. And despite, uh, you know, some of the folks not, you know, renewing their membership thinking it was a ticket, we continued to fight and we were able to get those major wins in the courts and major wins from the uh, FDA and advocacy perspective. Uh, so I would say that, you know, we're, we're an association that's holistic, that includes the trade show, that includes education, best practices, a product hub. Um, Scott Pierce and, and the board of directors has done an incredible job at building uh, the infrastructure of a true organization rather than just a one hit wonder. And, um, you know, I think Glenn and I, uh, we, we, we like to think that we're the uh, the uh, crown jewel of the association in advocacy, um, but we know that we work very you know um, well with all of the other components that the the association has to offer. And for you know it's renewal season right now, so I would tell the folks out there, even if you're you're unsure about going to the trade show, number one, you should go to the trade show, um, but number two that even if you have any hes hesitation about doing that, you should renew your membership. You should join the Premium Cigar Association. We are the retail force, and we're, we're here to stay, and we're here to fight those fights and all the challenges that we went through in, the, in this broadcast. And, Glenn, you got another one? Yeah, I mean, I feel strongly about this, and I, I think it's a, a story really about the attitude that this staff and this organization has. You know, Josh has said numerous times during tonight's discussion that it, it, there's only four of us on the government relations side of the team, and that's and one of those is a consultant. So there's only, you know, three of us in-house, and it's a big country. But even saying that, I think we've now got a collection of, of case studies where we can say publicly, no battle is too small. And yeah, we're involved in all these lofty FDA debates and the halls of Congress and dealing with, you know, we're, we're now, at least I'm now dealing, we're now dealing with our third president since regulation took effect. And, and we've had meetings in the White House and the like. And I say that just to elevate those types of discussions happen. <clears throat> but what I want to do is come full circle about how no issue is too small, because what may not rise to the to the top cream of the crop in Washington is important in other parts of the country. And I've got a case study for you of what Unfortunately, your audio is getting real choppy there. I apologize. Okay. 
Can you hear me? I can hear you now. All right. Putnam County is the home of Havana Cigar Shop, and their health department wants to shut down everywhere, every place of employment, which would include a cigar shop. So a few weeks ago, we worked together with the shop owner and filed testimony with the Putnam County Health Department in opposition to the smoking ban. Well, what does that do? That could help prevent the spread of proposals like that to 55 West Virginia counties. Or how about supporting a cigar bar bill in Augusta, North? Or how about supporting a cigar lounge, cigar bar ordinance for Louisville, Kentucky? Um, or providing testimony on a tax bill in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, I put all this out there because we now have a, a study to demonstrate that PCA will be there, will be working hand in glove with our retail partners, with consumer records in all these states. And I, I come back full circle to, a, to an old adage about, you know, the law firms that tobacco. The premium cigar political machine is never off. It's never off. We said this in a broadcast the other night with Josh and I. You know, we'll be texting each other at 1 a.m. on a fight going on in a given state or, or a member of Congress's office. Or we'll have to do a call on a Saturday with a group of retailers doing a, a, a regional briefing for retailers Sunday evening. We're all committed to this. We're vested to this. It's about defending an industry that we all feel passionate about. So whether you're from Putnam County, West Virginia, or you know Des Moines, Iowa, or something as impactful as a major tax bill impacting New York City, we're going to be there. And we're going to do what we can to help our retail and consumer and manufacturing partners to continue to be able to enjoy premium handmade cigars with as little government interference as humanly possible. So um, I'll put mine as no battles too small. Bring us, bring it to our attention, whether it's Brookline or Putnam County. Uh, let's work together to defend this industry. And, and continue to call us to task. You know, let us know what's going on. You know, the folks that are out there, consumer, retailer, manufacturer, reach out to us if you see something that we need to be engaged on. If there's a resource that we haven't created that you think we need to do. Um, I think it's really important that we have that feedback loop, and it can be constructive uh, feedback and criticism, and uh, you know, question that we we have a tall task, an important role within the industry, and we want to make sure that we're doing the the uh, you know the best of our abilities, and it also includes the cigar media. And I would add, you know, Glenn gave you three A three for your question, Matt, is PCA likes the cigar media. Glenn and I have been doing the politics of cigar tour this podcast, and uh, we enjoy these discussions. We learn a lot from uh, talking to the folks. We know that you are, and, and others in the cigar media are well-versed in this, and we appreciate the ability to speak to your audience and gain in constructful con conversation about these pressing issues that we're going to collectively face together, and we're going to have to collectively work together to achieve objectives absolutely well said I, I couldn't agree with both of you guys more um and then and i take it as a personal responsibility every week uh, to try to find a way to to bring up pca or or um s something related to it just just to keep it fresh you know to all the listeners um about pca and 
and getting involved and stuff like that because at, at the end of the day you know with without it you know this injury series is in danger and you know the way of life so if you want to protect that way of life you, you have to you have to step up and, and, and get involved any way you can um, but as we wind down the show I want to thank both of you guys for being here with me tonight I really appreciate it uh, I think it was a great discussion a lot of good things were were talked about and, and gone over um, I do have a message uh, Glenn from um, Matt Booth from Room 101 <laughs> Uh, he, he so he posted on Facebook today that he um, him and the family have fallen ill, um, and yeah. so he uh, I, I texted him to wish him wish him all the best and whatever. And, and in our exchange, as crazy as it can be, um, I won't read all of it because some of it I like to keep personal. But uh, he did say that because uh, I, I told him you guys would be on, and he said, "Well, I announced that Glenn, Glenn Loop and I will be staying in a cabin in Tahoe." For the holidays, <laughs> consuming radical amounts of martinis powered by Room 101 gin. So, <laughs> the invitation has been publicly set. I would love. <laughs> well, one of the health thing is, uh, I, I hope it goes away very, very quickly. I'm not sure the particulars, but I saw that on Facebook as well. And anything that affects Matt Booth and his family is near and dear to me personally. I, I love him, love his family. And if, and if I had a real live invitation to go to Tahoe to spend the holidays drinking 101 gin with Matt Booth, by golly, we, we would be there. And uh, I did pay a compliment to, to Matt on, on this front. Uh, Room 101 gin is one of the few gins that I can drink straight. It's, it's an, it's an amazing product. So, I agree. You know, given that, you know, I rarely talk. I rarely talk about what cigar I'm smoking because when you work for the industry, they're all our favorites. But when it comes to gin, Room 101 gin, the official gin, the Glenloop's humidor and cabinet <laughs> uh, sitting behind it. <laughs> I got a couple of bottles too. It's good stuff, and I don't like gin. The um, I love it. I love it in the summertime, but I tell you what, keep a bottle in the freezer. That's the place to keep that. Oh my God, it's fine. <laughs> Uh, we do have a, uh, a, a to announce another winner um, from our uh, from our giveaway, and that winner is going to be from Instagram. The user just one more cigar. You are the winner of the Maca the box of the McAuliffe Bold Maduros, I believe it was. Um, we will get in touch with you. Nicole will probably get in touch with you and let you know if you're not watching. Uh, but congratulations! And there's still two more prizes, so guys, keep at it. Subscribe to the newsletter. Follow us on social media and all that fun stuff. You can find all the rules on there. Um, but we still got two more things to give away. There's still a box of LFD, and then there's still the um, the bundle of cigars from Nicole and my personal humidors uh, that we put together. Uh, so don't forget to miss that. Check that out. Next week we have Mr. Oliver Nouveau from United Cigars joining us for our Christmas episode. I think John will be back for that one, but I'm not sure. I'll have to find out. Um, so stay tuned for that. There is another Spare Note series this weekend with myself and Mr. William Cooper. So don't forget to tune in on Saturday. Uh, and with that, it really does it for us tonight on the Smoke Tobacco Show. That was it. There was a lot of information in about an hour and 40 minutes that we had together. Uh, a little bit of a rough start with the technical difficulties, but I think we ironed it out for the most part. Um, so again, I apologize for any inconvenience that might have caused. But gentlemen... Once again, thank you for being here with me tonight. I really appreciate it. I think we had a great time, great conversation. It's always a joy to talk to you guys. 
um, and do this. This is uh, I love doing this. So thank you guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Well, that's going to do it, guys. Stay tuned for more. Don't miss us this Saturday. Don't miss us next week. And don't forget to check out that giveaway. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.